Welcome to the ICTA podcast, where we think together about unity and solidarity, or ICTA, on campus. In the ICTA podcast, we take time out to listen to students as they share their stories about what has made them feel powerful and powerless in their university journeys, and to hear their thoughts on practical steps that we can take to create more inclusive spaces at UFE. Let's learn differently together. ICTA. Welcome to ICTA, a podcast about creating unity by understanding different learning experiences here at UFE. I'm your host, Victoria Surtees, and I'm the Internationalization Specialist here at UFE. So I'm grateful to be here today recording at Civil Radio, uh, which is located on the sacred land of the Halkamalem speaking people of the river, the Stalo peoples. And I'm here with a guest today, Anna Tsoi, who is an international student and actually now UFE alumni. Welcome, Anna. Hi, Victoria. Thank you for having me here today. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's such an honor to represent international students and share my experience with everyone. Oh, we're so excited to have you. So we're going to be talking to Anna today about her experience living, learning and working here at um, UFE. And as always, we're going to be providing a few ideas for creating courses that appeal to students with different backgrounds and experiences. So if you are looking to go a little deeper than we have time um, for today in our podcast, please do check out the description below um, for a summary. And there's also a link to um, many helpful resources there. So Anna, you came to UFE from Kazakhstan. So maybe you can just tell us, you know, a little bit about yourself and, and what you're doing here, where you come from. Yeah, of course. Um, as you already mentioned, my name is Anna um, Tsoi, and I was born and grew up in Kazakhstan. I graduated with a bachelor's of science degree in biology, and my major focus was in genetics. Um, my future plan is to hopefully become a genetic counselor. As a student from Kazakhstan, I had to change my entire world to come here and to experience a lot of new things. And um, I think Kazakhstan is probably one of those countries that people don't really know about. And sometimes when I tell them I'm from Kazakhstan, they're like, oh, where is it? What city is it? Um, and then I have to explain to everyone that it's actually a different country. So probably a couple of things that I could talk about are um, Kazakhstan is actually pretty big. It's the ninth largest country in the world. Oh, wow. And we speak um, two languages, Russian and Kazakh. And um, depending on your family background, you might be more fluent in one or another. So Anna, you just said that um, Kazakhstan has two official languages, Kazakh and Russian. Um, and so I was wondering which languages do you speak and how is that maybe connected to your, your family history or, or the area of Kazakhstan that you live in? Yeah, um, so all my life I lived in the northern part of Kazakhstan, which is really close to Russia. And um, that's probably the reason why I mainly spoke Russian. And at the same time, my family background is also Russian and Korean. Mm. So um, my dad is a third generation immigrant in Kazakhstan uh, of Korean descent. And he never spoke to me in Korean. He only knew Russian because that's what his parents taught him. And my mom is Russian, so she only spoke Russian to me. And unfortunately, I am really fluent in Russian and it's my first language. But with Kazakh, it's mainly everything that I studied at school. Mm. I would say I probably didn't pay as much attention as I should have, uh, but I can understand Kazakh easily. I cannot speak it fluently, however. Mm. So you're actually trilingual? 
Yeah, we can say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's that's really interesting. So it sounds like um, Kazakhstan is a very diverse place, um, you know, in terms of language, but also maybe ethnicity as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have a lot of different ethnicities. I'm going to say probably over 120. Wow. Um, and even in my class at school, we would have um, 20 out of 30 people with different ethnicities or mixed race. Um, so it's definitely a very diverse country. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so that, that must um, raise some questions here when you come. How do you explain that to other people? <laughs> What's your experience been? <laughs> it's definitely difficult to explain to people because as soon as they um, hear that I speak Russian, they start assuming that I'm from Russia. And then at the same time, I don't necessarily look like a Russian person. So everyone just gets so confused. And then up until now, some of my friends will introduce me and say that I'm from Russia, even though I am from Kazakhstan and I'm proud of it. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's really, that's really interesting. What do you do in situations like that? Well, I sometimes I definitely like if it's the person that I met for the first time, I don't necessarily correct them. Um, but if it's someone who's getting closer to me, I definitely want to make sure that they know where I come from. So I have to explain to them that I'm actually from Kazakhstan and my parents are Korean and Russian. Mm-hmm. And that's why I speak Russian language and that Kazakhstan also speaks two languages. Mm. Wow. And I mean, in some in some ways, I think Kazakhstan and Canada have a lot in common, um, you know, big spaces yeah. Uh, not not a super dense population. So I did look it up. There's about 19 million people in um, in Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. So a, a little bit less than Canada. Um, but we're around the same density in terms yeah. of person per per, col- per number of people per square kilometer. Yeah. So that, that was uh, quite interesting. And, and for people who don't know, Kazakhstan used to be part of the USSR mm-hmm. and gained independence in 1991. Um, and since then, there's been huge changes in the, in the makeup of Kazakhstan, right? We are seeing lots of Russians move back to Russia, That's ethnic Ka- Kazakhs moving back to Kazakhstan. Um, and so there's been a lot of different changes in flows um, and makeup in the country recently. So very, very interesting for sure. Um, there are only about three or 4,000 people of Kazakh ancestry in Canada, so not a huge group. Yeah. So um, have you ever met anyone else from Kazakhstan while you've been here? I've actually not met anyone else with Kazakhstan specifically, uh-huh. but I did meet other people who are um, Russian born in Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. So it, there is definitely not a huge representation of Kazakh people. Even at UFV, I, d- I don't think I've met even a single person who is from Kazakhstan at UFV specifically. Okay, so you decided you chose UFV um, and you studied biology and that's, that's super interesting. So what really motivated you to choose UFV? What was it about UFV that, and, and uh, maybe about Canada that uh, made you decide to come? Yeah, it's actually a long story. When I was in high school, my main focus was to actually go to Russia and study there. Um, But before that, my parents would always make sure that I travel the world and they would send me to different places. So the first place I went to by myself was Korea. It was a summer camp there. Um, After that, I think I was around 14 years old. That's when I decided that I want to learn English and probably to be able to speak to different people in other countries as well. 
Um, so I started learning English and then when I was around 16 my parents sent me to England and there I realized that Russian and Kazakh culture they sort of don't line up with me and that was the moment when I understood that I probably want to see something else and to be able to have a different university experience. I definitely liked the way people behaved in England and how friendly they were and more open to everyone. So um, I went back home that year and that was um, my second last year in high school. So I talked to my parents and obviously it's financially really heavy to go to any different country and England is probably one of the most expensive ones to study abroad. So we ended up finding different agencies that actually sent people to Canada, Australia, England and a lot of other countries. And um, then one of my mom's friends talked to us and she had her relatives studying Canada. And then I did a lot more research and I realized that Canada sounds like a really great country to come to. Um, so we found um, another agency and then they just recommended a lot of different schools. And my main focus was to study genetics because that's what I really enjoyed. And to add to that, in um, Kazakhstan there are really not many opportunities to study genetics. It's not as developed as it is here, um, which is why my parents wanted to do everything they can to help me out. So one of the universities they recommended was U of V and there were two main reasons. One, it was financially more affordable than a lot of others. Two, it also had the genetics component and on top of that, um, the classes are very small and they told us that it's going to give me more opportunity to communicate with professors and to learn even more than being in a bigger class setting. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's sort of how I ended up choosing UFV. Yeah. Wow. So that that's a that's an interesting story, and I think many listeners might not know the role that agents play in recruiting international mm -hmm. students. Um, so about ninety percent or more of our international students come through agents and receive their information yeah. about which universities to choose through agents. Mm -hmm. So that's. Um, that's a pretty common experience across the, the international student body. Um, but it's an interesting one because I think it's quite different from the domestic student experience where domestic students um, are, are more expected to do their own research about the universities and, um, and to spend a lot of time doing the applications by themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm definitely grateful that I didn't have to like, go through that stressful process of applying by myself. Okay, so, so thank you. So now you're here and, and you finished your degree. It was a four-year degree, right? Yep. Um, so you, you started before COVID, went through all of COVID, and then finished um, just as you were able to walk across the stage. So thank goodness you managed to make that happen. Um, so tell us a little bit about that experience and maybe how it was different than your educational experience in Kazakhstan. Um, one biggest difference for me is the fact that there is definitely a different relationship between professors and students compared to Kazakhstan. Um, with all my teachers at school, there was never an open communication. Teachers there, they don't really welcome questions and they don't 
raise your curiosity about anything. They basically teach you what they know. And beyond that, you can't really ask a lot. Which is really sad because that's the only way you can really learn. Um, but yeah, back home, I I was used to never asking questions during the class or even after the class, I would go home myself and like research whatever I wanted to know. But um, if you did ask a question in class, there would be like the teacher might give you a weird look or something like that. And then all the students would be like, why are you even trying to ask something? But here, on the other hand, the first day I came here, all professors were saying how they encourage you to ask questions and it's okay if you stop me in between my lecture and you just don't understand something, I'll go over it again. And that was a huge barrier for me. It took me probably a year to actually feel more comfortable to ask questions and to be able to even reach out to professors via email. So I think that's the biggest difference that um, I faced here. Wow. Yeah, so so you're saying that even though these instructors told you probably multiple times, right, during the semester, it's okay, Anna, it's yeah. okay, ask these questions. Um, there was something inside you that was saying, well, maybe they're saying that, but maybe I'm not really sure if it's okay. So what what maybe held you back from, from jumping in and asking those questions, even though clearly you're someone who likes to ask questions? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's definitely, I think it's the fact that I grew up in that environment for 18 years. My uh, preschool, my entire school years, I was taught to not ans- ask questions or I was scared of asking questions because of the way teachers would react. And then all of a sudden you come here and you can't really change that inside of you so quickly within like one week or even one semester was not enough for me. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first time that you actually asked a question to an instructor and how that felt? Um, I don't remember specifically, but I remember that it was like I was dreading asking questions <laughs> once I started doing it. But then once you actually start doing it, once you start emailing professors, you feel so much more comfortable. Wow. So big, big <laughs> changes. And again, like yeah. I think that's that's a story that I've heard more than once. Um, it's a, a reasonably common um, change and shift, I think, mm-hmm. um, in educational culture. So I, I appreciate you um, bringing, bringing that up. And now, of course, we have to talk about COVID because, I mean, COVID has impacted everybody's educational experience. But as an international student, perhaps it impacted you in maybe a bit of a different way. Um, even though you, you didn't come first during the pandemic, it sounds like there were still maybe some impacts. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, COVID started in my second year of studies. And at that time, I had a lot of lab courses. So all of them got switched into online labs, or some of them just didn't proceed at all. And unfortunately, after my second year, that was the time when I started asking professors if I could volunteer to help in the lab, or if I could do something else to have that experience of being in the lab to get future jobs. And because of COVID, there were restrictions of how many people they could have in the lab. Mm -hmm. So all all of the professors would say, no, I'm sorry, unfortunately, this year we can't do that. And that was going into my third year and starting my fourth year, it all stayed the same. 
So um, that definitely deprived me of that lab experience that I wanted and that experience beyond the classroom that I wanted to gain and I wanted to try out, um, which right now definitely affected um, the search for jobs because I can't put on my resume that I had any lab experience apart from the classroom experience that I had. So it, it made it so much harder. Yeah, that I mean, COVID is, it was so tough, but it's interesting to think about the impact specifically on the sciences and, and that the, the impact that, you know, missing that lab experience has. And I think, you know, when we're thinking about international students, the networks that, that they have typically, and maybe that, that you have, is really tightly um, connected to the university. Um, there aren't so many networks outside of the, the mm. university um, because you're coming from a new, from a different place um, and don't have anything established. So those university connections and opportunities are just so important, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I see some people who are getting jobs because they do have those connections. And unfortunately for me, as a person who just came here and doesn't have family or anyone else so to say it's really hard to find a job without that connection Mm -hmm. but I'm definitely grateful that I've had a chance to um, communicate with certain professors and in my fourth year I started doing a directed studies project Um, and the professors who are doing who were doing it with me they definitely helped me a lot and even in terms of um, the genetic counseling career that I want to proceed, that they played a big role in that, um, because they, um, one of the professor's um, wife, she was able to connect me with genetic counselors, and she is herself a genetic counselor. So I could gain that experience of going to the clinic and observing what's happening, which not everyone else was able to get once again because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it, so it sounds like um, some of the UFP professors leverage their personal networks mm-hmm. for you, um, which is, you know, that's an extra step and it's, it's something that really makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing that and I think um, I think that helps us move into our next question, which is a big one, an important one. Um, and that's what has made you feel powerful and what has made you feel powerless at UFV. So we'll start with what has made you feel powerful at UFV. Times when I felt powerful at UFV is the time when I was working as a senior um, community housing ambassador in Lalamta Baker. And that was the time when I was in a way representing students at Baker and I was able to bring in changes as a senior community housing ambassador Um, because at first I started as a regular CHA and I was really able to learn a lot about the way the dorms work and what students need. I was sitting at the front desk and just learning a lot of different situations when students needed help, when they needed some guidance, because there so many people are just so fresh here. They just came to UFE. They don't know what to do. They don't even know where Walmart is um, or international folks. They don't know what stores to go to, to buy groceries and everything. So 
when I gained that position of being a senior, I felt powerful because I was able to bring that change and I trained um, the rest of the CHAs to make sure that they're aware of things that um, they need to know and of everything, the way they have to respond to new folks to ensure that they feel welcome here. Wow, so those are great stories and I, I think what I what I really heard there is is having an opportunity to be an advocate for something important to you um, really really was a key piece for you that it was it was powerful. And I know now you're a volunteer, of course, you volunteer yeah. at the Fraser Health Crisis Line um, as well. So it seems that that's, that advocacy piece and supporting people in need is something that's really important to you. Yeah, absolutely, you're correct in that. Yeah, um, definitely volunteering as a crisis line call taker is something that's so meaningful for me. Just being able to sit there and talk to someone and know that your voice is something that's changing someone's life is a huge thing for me. And while for me it might be just another call, I know that for that person on the other end of the line, it's a life-changing experience. And when you really talk someone out of committing suicide, it's so huge. Yeah, I, I can't imagine what that must feel like. And I, I really admire you for doing that because I know it's an intensive training process um, and, and not something that everyone can do. But I, I do also think it speaks to the, you know, the value of you moving up through that leadership in, mm-hmm. in housing and having um, that knowledge that you do and that perspective that you do and, and these clear, strong listening and advocacy skills. <laughs> I mean, really, really amazing. Um, so thank you for thank everything you. that you've <laughs> contributed to UFB. And so that, that brings me to the sadder part of the question, which mm-hmm. is maybe what has made you feel powerless here at UFV? Um, I feel like there were not that many situations when I felt powerless, but one thing that made me feel powerless was... Um, when I knew that there is a problem, but I wasn't able to change it. Um, so at one of my jobs, we were going through ex- an extensive training process. And unfortunately, a lot of uh, people of color have noticed that um, one of the trainers was a little biased towards people of color and definitely had a different opinion towards white people Um, and in that situation probably people of color are so used to being like it's okay if it happens once or twice you know we'll let it pass but when it comes to like seeing it day to day and then you realizing that okay this is not just um, a coincidence Um, it is happening constantly which means that the person who is doing it is definitely biased towards us. They just don't want to hear our opinion. So what was happening during that training was um, whenever people of color raise an issue or when they bring up their opinion, it would sort of get brushed off, like they haven't said anything. The exact same thing gets repeated by a white person. And then all of a sudden the trainer is like, oh, wow, that's that's an amazing idea. Mm. So um, we did 
um, go to someone higher up. We um, complained about it. And after a while, that complaint got brought up even higher. And unfortunately, um, I believe the person was sent to certain training sessions and um, I'm not exactly sure what they went through, but there was some other extensive training for them to make sure that they're being more inclusive. But um, afterwards, I did not see how much of a change happened. And I obviously graduated, so now I I can't tell what's going on. Um, But at that time, I didn't really see a lot of change, which made me feel so powerless because we did everything we could in our power to bring it up and um, to talk to someone. But unfortunately, nothing has happened. Nothing has changed. And I'm very sorry to hear that that happened. And I, I, I think that it's an unfortunately frequent situation. And so I... I, I hope that um, in sharing that story here today that, that mm-hmm. we can perhaps have some people reflect about how frequent that is um, and, and how we can transform that into more meaningful action going forward. Mm-hmm. And I think that that brings us beautifully into the next question, which is about action and where we can go from here. Um, so based on sort of your experiences and the stories that you've shared, what are maybe some things that uh, faculty or staff could do to support students like you or other international students? Um, You've mentioned a few areas where there might be some places Mm -hmm. um, that instructors could work. So maybe you can share a few ideas with us. Yeah, so I think for professors, it's really important to know that if international students don't ask any questions, it doesn't really mean that they don't have any questions. Maybe they just come from a similar background as me and it's really hard to ask questions for them. So I think it's important for professors to like constantly reinforce that and to make sure that they tell the students that the questions are welcomed and that they can be reached out outside their lecture hours as well. And um, I think another important part is that a lot of students like me don't have connections so I think professors being able to just write reference letters or help out in those ways um, it's very important for students as well um, to just make sure that they help give them some kind of network and even if it just comes from a reference letter yeah and another thing I think from my experience with that racism issue that we were raising. The person itself actually thinks that they are not racist Mm -hmm. and um, they definitely think that they advocate for people of color. So sometimes I think it's important for you to look back at everything that you do and to realize that even if you don't think you have that bias, you actually do. And it shows in your actions and not in your words. Thank you, Anna. I, that's a good reminder for me as well, um, as I do this work, to to look back on my own actions and my own interactions and to think about um, how it is that I'm working with, with all of you. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciate the reminder. And I'll certainly be including some um, resources for interrupting bias, especially in meetings, which also mm-hmm. work really well for in class discussions and um, small group work as well. 
So I appreciate you bringing that to our attention and to remind to reminding us um, of the, that responsibility that we have. So with that, I think I think we're all done. And I'm going to say thank you so, so much um, for coming and sharing your ideas with us. If anyone is interested in finding out more about Kazakhstan and finding out more about some of the issues and ideas that Anna has raised today, please check out the resources below the podcast. Um, there'll be a PDF research uh, sheet there attached. And of course, if you'd like to communicate with me, suggest some ideas for this podcast, just get in touch. My name is Victoria Surtees. Um, my email address is victoria.surtees, that's S-U-R-T-E-E-S at U-F-V dot C-A. So once again, thank you so much, Anna. Well, thank you so much for having me here. And I really hope that my experiences will teach us something. <laughs> I hope so as well. Yeah. ICTA is hosted by UFE's Teaching and Learning Center and sponsored by UFE International. Music by no Saint Soldier. No matter how long it takes us, no matter how much this world breaks us, may we live here in peace, live here as one from Bolivia to Greece, from India to Canada and everywhere between. Namaste to everyone I see. Namaste, I recognize that it's one. Namaste, and the suffering is done. Suffering is done. Suffering is done. Ayo. Namaste. Namaste, 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 Namaste,